0: Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil and this is...
1: Emily-Kate Stevens.
0: Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID.
1: And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Emily. How was your week? (laughs) (laughs) Mine was terrible. Oh, my love. What's been going on?
0: So, as you know, I've had... A couple of bouts of viruses, bacterial infections, and some really dodgy antibiotics. And about a week ago now, sitting at the kitchen table, nice cup of tea, and I get an alert on my watch saying, higher heart rate alert. And that's the first time it's ever happened to me, where I'm just sitting quietly and my heart rate goes out of control. It's quite scary, actually. That's the first time in two years since I've been sick that that's ever happened
1: And could you feel it?
0: I mean, I could. I didn't feel nauseous or sweaty or anything else, but I could feel my heart racing. Yeah. I wasn't really paying any attention to it.
1: Because you wouldn't, because you're sitting down having a cup of tea. You wouldn't expect it, would you?
0: For half an hour, it was at a steady 128, roughly. And then I got up to lie down, and it shot to 175. (laughs) That was quite alarming. And I've had now a week of full tachycardia, every time I move. So I'm back on the beta blockers. And it's calmed down considerably, but the beta blockers have their own nasty side effects.
1: And now what's happening when you go to move around? It's fine. So it's sort of stabilised?
0: It's stabilised, but my MCAS, or what we think is MCAS, has been really bad in terms of feeling flushed and allergic So I'm back yeah. on the antihistamine... But I think it's all been really compounded because there's lots of stuff in the press right now. People just dropping dead of heart attacks. I know. I know. Even though I've had my heart checked out and I've been told it's fine, that doesn't mean your heart just can't suddenly have an attack or a clot or something. Yeah. It's just been a bit of a reality check after six months of good health to suddenly be right, probably worse than I've ever been. I say this often, but I think our body's just taking a beating every time we get sick. Yeah. It compounds.
1: Get sick with anything, and we don't know what this virus was that you just had. No. I know
0: I had a stomach bacterial infection, and I know I had some kind of virus, but was negative on lateral flows.
1: Yeah, but your immune system is not able to process in the way that it normally would.
0: Yeah, it just makes you feel very mortal especially because it's heart-related. Yeah. I've been very tired, obviously, because your heart's overworking. But I was so well for so long and it didn't make any difference.
1: No, and I think that's something that's really hard to cope with, that even though you have always said you expect it, you anticipate it, you know that you're not recovered, it's still a massive blow when you have had all of those incremental gains over those six months to be brought back to this level. That's quite hard to deal with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty hard to deal with. It just makes me really think about the mechanism of long COVID a lot.
1: Yeah, and we were just saying yesterday, it also makes you think about how this feels like it might just be the tip of the iceberg in terms of...
0: Long-term health.
1: Long-term, how it's going to affect both you and I and... The general population at large, because you were doing, you were doing so well.
0: Yeah. How are you, Emily? (laughs) I hope you've had a better week than I've had.
1: I'm good. I have had a good week. I've been down in Devon with the kids, and so I've had a little break. And I'm generally fairly good. My sleep is still awful which is why I look look like this one of the things with my sleep is when I'm trying to go to sleep I'm getting these headaches like it feels like my eyes are bulging out of my head I think I have talked about this before a long long time ago then of course you know you start googling that and that kind of blurred vision and and sudden onset head pain then you get worried that you've had TIA
0: (laughs) or high blood pressure
1: is that what it could be I've got really low blood pressure. You know when you're absolutely exhausted and your eyes kind of ache? It's like that. But when I go to lie down and close my eyes, I can't get this pain to to stop.
0: I haven't been sleeping at all. I've been like kind of lying awake all night.
1: Yeah, and it's horrible. And it's all
0: reminiscent of the first really bad onset of long
1: COVID. Mm.
0: But what I'm hoping is that, you know, I'll bounce back quicker. Because, you know, (laughs) we live in hope.
1: Yeah, well, let's see if our bodies learnt that at all in terms of recovery. You know, I tore my hamstring three weeks ago now. That is still absolute agony. And I have to say, like sitting in a car, absolute agony. So my concern with recovery is I don't know how quickly our bodies are recovering from, from, from anything, any kind of knock.
0: That brings up a good point. I've had a crack in the side of my mouth. You know those awful kind of cuts that you get?
1: That's MCAS, my love. It
0: has not healed it doesn't in heal. a month.
1: Yeah, and I've always found since the beginning of this that any cuts and things like that take a really, really long time to heal. And I had, I, I've had things that have taken eight weeks to heal that would, you'd normally expect it to sort of scab over and go in a week. So I do worry about the speed of our healing
0: well just shows you our immune system is just off doing other things
1: very busy <laughs> <laughs> so this week we spoke to david petrino who heads up the petrino lab at mount sinai in new york and he describes himself as a neuroscientist in terms of his scientific background but clinically he is a physical therapist
0: so we were really we were really keen to talk to him because of his work with Dr. Kiko Iwasaki, who seems to be leading the way in terms of trying to find biomarkers.
1: Yeah, they recently done a study looking at long COVID patients with healthy control groups as well to try and look at the differences between long COVID and non-long COVID people in terms of a huge range of different markers
0: It was a really wide-ranging and interesting interview, and there are lots of little bits in there that I think people listening will find fascinating. Tell us how you first came to work with people or even identify people with long COVID.
2: I I think my background is important there because our centres were all about rapid integration of novel technology that makes sense. As such, one of the things that we were doing before the pandemic hit was we had an active remote monitoring program for stroke survivors who had left the hospital. So a patient has a stroke, they enter the hospital, they undergo intensive rehab in the hospital, and then they're discharged from the hospital. And often what happens at that discharge point is we lose a lot of people to follow up. And they can go on to have bad outcomes, they can go on to have a second stroke, or they can go on to fall down in their home. And uh, what we wanted to do was build a model that would keep tabs on our patients and make sure that we're doing everything that we can do to avoid a second stroke. So that program is called Precision Recovery, and we were tracking blood pressure in stroke survivors on a daily basis and making sure that they were doing okay. On a weekly basis, we would check in and we would say, hey, is everything okay? Can we see you move? Can we see you smile to to look for things like a facial droop, Simple things to make sure that this individual was doing okay after they left the hospital. March 2020 hit and New York went on lockdown. We were all called to work frontline in the hospital. And one of the things that myself and my colleague, uh, Chris Kellner, immediately noticed was our emergency departments were crammed. Mount Sinai, in fact, had to build tents outside of the Mount Sinai Hospital in Central Park to deal with the overflow of cases that we were seeing. And in many of those cases, the only advice that was being given to people with COVID was, yeah, you have COVID, but we can't give you a bed because you're not sick enough for a bed. So go home and come back if you get sicker. Now, remember, this is March of 2020. We knew nothing about COVID. So uh, at this time, we didn't even know that it, it caused the loss of sense of smell. It was just a scary virus that was killing people. And so that advice wasn't really comforting. You know, uh, go home and, and come back if you get sicker. Well, how much sicker is sicker? And when do you want to brave the outside again? We're all front of mind for a lot of patients. So what we did was in in the space of 48 hours, we took our program that was for stroke survivors And we changed the app to identify people who were going into respiratory failure by sheer coincidence. We had actually just published a paper showing that by asking a series of subjective questions and capturing a few biometrics, we could identify individuals with chronic lung disease who are about to go into hospital because of a lung infection. We used those questions and we got pulse oximeters and we started handing out pulse oximeters to people. And we followed the precision recovery model. We we checked in on people every single day. We checked in on people a little bit longer, once per week. And we kept people out of the hospital. We kept people away from the emergency department unless they really had to go. And then in that case, we made sure that the emergency department knew they were coming. They knew that they had been pre-vetted by us. And so they were streamlined straight into a room if if they came from our program.
1: But were those people that were already under your care?
2: No, we just put a phone number out on social and we said, if you have COVID or COVID symptoms, call this number. No questions asked, we'll take care of you. And so we launched that program March 16th. And by the end of March, we had a few thousand people on the platform. And by the end of April, we had... A cohort of people, but probably 15% of the people on that app, they just weren't leaving the app. Most people, they'd report their symptoms for three or four weeks, and then they would say, okay, I'm fine. Thanks for all the help. See you later. Off they went back to their life. But there was this group of individuals, about 15%. They were staying on the app, but they weren't reporting acute COVID symptoms anymore. They were talking about fatigue. They were talking about cognitive impairment. They were talking about post-exertional symptoms. The grocery delivery man handed me my groceries, I walked up the steps, I put all the groceries away, and then I had to lay down for two days. What's wrong with me? These were the things that were coming through and it was all remarkably consistent. We had all of these people who had no background in understanding of post-viral illness. They were just regular people off the street who were reporting signs and symptoms that are highly consistent with post-viral illness. It was around that time, around uh, late April, early May, that my team raised the alarm within the health system that we had something going on that was potentially debilitating and potentially scary. We pulled together a team of individuals who have worked with complex chronic illness before.
1: In that sort of post-viral setting?
2: Well, actually, no. I mean, depends on how you would class some of the complex chronic illnesses we work with. But personally, my team, we didn't have access to people who have worked with ME-CFS or Lyme disease. But we did have a number of wonderful collaborators that work on Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a genetic autoimmune condition. Often, there is some literature to suggest that it may be infection-associated. So we pulled the EDS team in We, as a group, also worked with concussion and post-concussion syndrome, and uh, many people with long COVID might agree that long COVID often feels like a severe concussion. We pulled together this this cluster of people who had experience in managing complex chronic illness, and we just started to work the problem. We started to catalogue symptoms. We started to think about interventions, because it's one thing to hear about long COVID in the news as a clinician and think, well, it's not really my problem. It's quite another, let me tell you, to have a platform with a few hundred people with long COVID doing daily reporting saying, what are you going to do to help? Nothing spurs you to action like a daily reminder that you're doing nothing to help when people are experiencing severe symptoms. That's where we started with our um, long COVID work.
0: We had the Zoe app in the UK, which is very similar some people self-reporting. But you are talking about really, really early days. Were you actually seeing patients or was it all being done remotely at that point?
2: In the early days, we weren't permitted to see outpatients at all. Yeah, We were attempting tele-rehab and tele-therapy mm-hmm. for, for these patients. So we were doing a lot of um, a remote consultation. By June, July, we were allowed to see patients again. So we opened the clinic and we started seeing some of these patients in person. And that's when we started to perform physical exams on the patients and look at autonomic symptoms and start to really evaluate these patients from a physical standpoint mm. and, and report on what we were seeing. As well.
1: Although, presumably, as we've seen throughout, there's not that much of a physical marker at that stage, that early on.
2: Well, it kind of depends on what you determine to be a physical biomarker. So with the American Association of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, we've just published a consensus guidelines uh, paper about autonomic nervous system dysfunction in long COVID. And one of the things that we point out is that around 70% of people with long COVID display signs and symptoms that are consistent with dysautonomia, which is a condition where the autonomic nervous system, which is the part of your nervous system that does all of the things that should be under autonomous control in your body, blood pressure regulation, sweat regulation, heart rate, breathing, gets knocked out of balance. And so patients start having very unusual and debilitating autonomic reactions to environmental and physical stimuli
1: and actually you're saying that those physical manifestations were apparent from the beginning it doesn't actually require all of the subsequent studies and testing that you've done that was there for you to see without specific bloods
2: well the symptoms were being reported of course but what i'm actually getting at is if you get a person with dysautonomia (laughs) we, we got a test a diagnostic test called the 10 minute stand test right You ask a person with dysautonomia to stand for 10 minutes, their heart rate's gonna increase by 20 or 30 beats per minute. Their legs are gonna go red and splotchy. These are physical science, right? And this is one of the things that frustrates me when we say, oh, there's there's no good tests for long COVID. Well, 70% of people will test positive for standing for 10 minutes. You know what the biggest issue is? Most clinicians don't want to take up 10 minutes of a physical exam, asking someone to stand, but that's not the disease's fault <laughs> it's It's a symptom that is very clear and there for everybody to see That's our health system's fault, telling us that we need to rush patients in and out of a clinical setting,
1: yeah, and also the healthcare system's fault that that is not necessarily classified as a marker when people are having all of their bloods coming back normal
2: well, true, this is the other thing that I have been advocating for very strongly yeah. is patient-reported outcomes are incredibly well-respected, speaking in in America, by groups like the Social Security Administration, who determines who goes on long or short-term disability, as well as insurance companies who determine what they will and will not pay for. If you use well-validated patient-reported outcomes, as opposed to A patient walks into your your office and says, I'm fatigued. And all you do in your note is write, patient complains of fatigue. That's on you as the clinician for not doing the follow-up, which is, okay, well, let's measure how fatigued you actually are. And then in three months, let's measure it again. The point about these instruments, these patient-reported outcomes, is they have been used in drug trials to approve drugs for fatigue, for post-exertional symptoms for high heart rate, for shortness of breath. And so they're well known to the government. They're well known to payers. And if you use them to characterize your patients, then you can actually intelligently argue for your patient's care. So you can say they came in and they scored a 40 on the fatigue severity scale. Now they're scoring an 80 on the fatigue severity scale, which means they're getting better on the fatigue severity scale. So the rehab is working versus patient number two, where you say, well, they scored a 40. Now they're a 30 three months later. Rehab isn't working. I think we need to consider short-term disability for this patient. And so these are the sorts of conversations that we as providers should be having.
1: You describe it as being patient reported outcomes, but actually what you're saying is it needs that validation by the clinician. I've read that you, you saying the first thing is that Everyone should be believed. So the clinician needs to believe the patient, but they then need to validate it somehow to then get it into the system.
2: Yes, to be clear on this, there is believing your patient, of course, and everyone everyone must be believed. Everyone walks in the door and, and says, "Here are my symptoms." Why on earth would you try and doubt those symptoms? It, it makes no sense. So someone comes in and says, "These are my symptoms." the first thing you do is you write down all the symptoms. The next thing, as scientists, because clinicians are supposed to be scientists, we all have scientific degrees, you measure the intensity of those symptoms. And and so actually, this is one of the things that I found the need to be very clear on because people say, oh, so you're using these metrics to diagnose long COVID. No, the diagnosis of long COVID is a clinical diagnosis. A patient comes in and says, I had COVID on this date. And four weeks later, I started developing these symptoms. And now six months later, I still have these symptoms. Me as a clinician, I say, okay, those are symptoms that are consistent with long COVID. And it is related to an initial SARS-CoV-2 infection. You have long COVID. I'm comfortable diagnosing you with long COVID. However, then the next step is let's measure how bad these symptoms are. Let's understand the intensity of your symptoms. Let's understand the symptom burden that these symptoms are placing on your life so that we can understand if our treatment approaches are doing any good. Because what we need to do is attack each symptom one by one. And if we're moving the needle on these symptoms, great. We keep doing what we're doing. If we're not, we quickly change to another strategy so that We're doing our best to um, alleviate the symptoms that you're experiencing as quickly as possible because these are terrible, painful, and debilitating symptoms. And so that's where measurement becomes crucial.
0: It's also education. We've had, what, I'd say a good two years, two and a half years now of knowing about long COVID, but people are going to come in and, and say, okay, I'm fatigued, I've got tachycardia, I walk up the stairs, my heart rate goes to that. You're going to be funneled then off to a cardiologist cardiologist is going to look at you and you says your heart actually is fine and take these drugs off you go and see how you are but as we know these symptoms are not because of the muscle itself but because of this dysautonomia it's really hard it's like we've almost skipped a whole year of investigations when we talk because mm-hmm. those first initial people complaining about long COVID or what we know now as the syndrome or this collection of symptoms is that It took a long time to get to this point that we are now speaking about, Mm -hmm. and still, there are not enough doctors and physicians like you, who actually think that this is something post viral.
2: Yeah, it's it's a challenge, and it's an educational challenge. One of the things that we're working on in the background within our lab is actually just building. Curriculum materials for medical schools, because yeah. as I've learned <laughs> uh, in all of this, there is no part of the medical curriculum that deals with infection-associated complex chronic illness. So you just don't learn about it. You learn about ME/CFS peripherally, and the learning that you do get about that is not particularly kind and is is rife with sort of gaslighting language. You learn about Lyme disease, but It's kind of a big shrug of, yes, this is terrible and ticks cause it, but we don't know how to treat it. You learn about each of these conditions in isolation and you learn very, very little about it and you kind of glossed over it. You don't need to worry about this unless you want to be a specialist in it. So I think education is key. I think we need to just disrupt the whole curriculum.
1: And it's not just in in med school. You need to actually be re-educating people who trained 30 years ago
2: 100 and i know
1: that you're trying to do that as well
2: yes this is something actually we can do faster than curricular changes because because curricular changes take time and need to be accredited by the ama we have continuing education courses that we are actively trying to get out there to clinicians the challenge there with the continuing ed courses is The clinicians themselves have to want to sign up for them. I certainly am bumping into clinicians who are saying, oh, well, it's just burnout, isn't it? Or it's just psychological isolation, the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very challenging thing to have to deal with and sort of manage when you're hearing clinicians really missing the point. Yeah,
1: from the medical profession. Also, the other one is, and I know that you have strong views on this as well, deconditioning. They say it's (laughs) just that you're deconditioned. I'm not deconditioned.
2: Yeah, I I had a a fairly drawn out argument with a a clinician about this with, with one of their patients where the patient clearly had long COVID and the mental gymnastics that the physician went through to avoid saying that this person had long COVID was staggering to me. First, it was that because the patient is obese, then it was the patient is just old. Then it was deconditioning despite the fact that the patient had an asymptomatic case of COVID, acute COVID. So I was like, but where's this deconditioning coming from? The, the acute COVID was confirmed by antibody, but otherwise the patient didn't even know that they had it. So
0: why do you think people do that?
2: Because I think that when something that is outside of their experience comes along, there are a lot of people that don't have a level of openness to new ideas. They have a high level of uncertainty, intolerance. They've built up their, their ego and their self-worth on this idea that they're a great doctor and
1: they can fix people
2: and they can fix people and they know what's what. And then something comes in that is completely alien to their experience. And the most natural approach to that is, well, this person must be faking
1: (laughs) Blame it on the patient.
2: A hundred (laughs) percent, you know, and I find it fascinating because I really approach everything clinical from the standpoint that we don't know anything (laughs) and it's a miracle that people get better. Um, And so when something new comes along, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, this makes sense because the body is complicated and we're going to really have to struggle to figure this out.
0: This is part of the reason why people with long COVID really, really would like a biomarker because then we can, you know, that makes it legit in kind of traditional speak for them to be sick Because they do come across people all the time dismissing their symptoms. And I have a great example because I see a really, really top cardiologist in the US, probably in the world, at the Cleveland Clinic. And I saw him last year and I saw him this year. And last year, he said my heart was fine. I have long COVID. My symptoms are mostly cardiac. And he was like, "Nope, good news. Your heart's perfect for your woman of your age, et cetera, et cetera. This year, my stats were even better, even though I'm still displaying all the symptoms of dysautonomia. And he had sympathy for me this year because he said, Oh, I had COVID and now I kind of get it. And I'm looking at him, I'm thinking, you're one of the top doctors in the world. And you still don't know anything about this. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is like if you're if you're, you know, if you're looking at the top one percent in any field and they're still not knowing about it, it would be great to have a biomarker.
1: It doesn't give much hope for the lower doubt. No. You've recently done this study that has looked at a huge range of potential biomarkers. Can you tell us the highlights of, I I have read the study. Yeah, we've read the study. But for our audience, could you explain the top line of what that reveals in terms of biomarker?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would first preface with that was a, a, a really wonderful study with that was a collaboration between Mount Sinai and Yale mm. University and it's been an absolute career highlight to get to work with Akiko Iwasaki who is just the most wonderful collaborator and and incredibly brilliant as well and then so many other people have contributed to that paper so yeah it's, defi- it's yeah. definitely not my paper but The paper itself was a really impactful and important one. I think the top line takeaways from that would be we did deep immune profiling on a group of people with long COVID that we diagnosed with long COVID using World Health Organization diagnostic criteria. A group of people who had had COVID said that they had fully recovered from COVID and passed a brief screening of ours to ensure that they didn't have persistent symptoms that although they didn't consider to be persistent symptoms actually were. A brief aside on that was we actually had to throw out about 50% of our cohort in that group because they were experiencing persistent symptoms you know so they failed the screening exam.
1: It's It's so interesting isn't it because so many people that Noreen and I speak to having eventually been diagnosed with long COVID you go that thing that you've got going on, you've got long COVID or you've got, it's a residue or, of the yeah. COVID.
2: And yeah, to, to be clear, we we didn't diagnose these folks with long COVID. We just said, sorry, this is something we would consider to be a persistent symptom. If you'd like a doctor's appointment, we can arrange for that. But the fact that you no longer exercise four months out from your acute COVID infection because exercise makes you feel unwell. Yeah. Is a flag for us, so we're not going to let you be in a control group of people without long COVID. So um, that was the, the the first control group, and then the second control group, which is an incredibly rarefied control group. Now, <laughs> I was so impressed you'd found them. <laughs> well, we started early. That was the that was the good thing. But yeah, individuals who had never had COVID,
1: and you confirmed that with antibody testing.
2: We confirmed that both with antibody testing, which many of us would know is somewhat flawed at this point Mm. um, because of the level of seroconversion. So we did the best we could. So to to their knowledge, they'd never had COVID. They didn't have the N antibodies associated with COVID. And they also passed the same screening exam that the first control group got. And in that cohort, only 2% failed the screen rather than 50%. So, you know, (laughs) uh, interesting difference. So that, that was our cohort. And then we did some deep immune profiling where we looked at autoantibodies. We looked at B cells and T cells and uh, exhausted B and T cells and activated B and T cells. We looked at enterovirus reactivation or evidence thereof. We looked for evidence of circulating spike proteins that might indicate viral persistence. We looked at hormone levels, things like cortisol, Lots and lots of things to look at. I I think the first big takeaway from my perspective was there was no singular biomarker because as we've suspected for quite some time, long COVID is a big blanket diagnosis. So there are many different pathobiological processes causing the different symptoms that people are experiencing. However, if you took the big candidates, so evidence of viral persistence, evidence of immune dysfunction, evidence of enterovirus reactivation, hormone levels, and built them into a machine learning classifier. Using the blood biomarkers that we got from people with long COVID, we could differentiate them from people without long COVID with 96% accuracy. So that was a very good sanity check for, okay, no matter what is causing the symptoms, and with the understanding that it could be different things in different people. When you take this whole panel of blood tests together, we see clear differences in the long COVID cohort versus, versus the, the not long COVID cohort. So
1: from that, are you saying that you potentially think that there are four different genres, four different subtypes or mechanisms of long COVID?
2: I mean, there, there could be even more.
1: But those are some that you've identified?
2: Those are some we've identified. We hope to start some work with Ricia Pretorius to look at microclots in people with long COVID, mm. so vascular and endovascular pathology, because I think that that is another important driver of symptoms in in people with long COVID.
1: We, we've spoken to um, we've spoken to Richelle, We've spoken to quite a few people about the micro clotting, and we'd be very interested to hear what you come back with, because. To Noreen and I, it still feels we're not scientists, but it still feels like it's potentially a byproduct or something that has been created by the long COVID. But whether it is a mechanism in the it. same yeah. way as the potential autoimmune, autoimmune dysfunction, we remain to be convinced. To be convinced.
2: Oh yes, I think that my my take on it would, uh, and we have a lot to learn, but. Yeah, you don't clot for no reason, would be my uh, my general very, very lay re- response to that. So there's definitely something underlying that would... Cause the clotting. That would cause the clotting that needs to be addressed. However, I also think that in many cases, what we may also see is that individuals had that initial cytokine storm or initial extreme immune response, their body formed to the clots their body's no longer forming microclots, but you still have these circulating fibrin microclots that are causing persistent symptoms and will continue to cause persistent symptoms until they're cleared. So I I think that there certainly in some cases could be there was an acute response and now you have vascular pathology that is suboptimal that needs to be corrected. And once it's corrected, You're free and clear because I can say that I've certainly seen some individuals just respond very well to some sort of anti Coag therapy. Okay. And then that's it for them, which is, I'm very happy for them, but that is not everyone's experience for sure. And what we need to understand is what's driving it in the first place, what's driving it, et cetera, et cetera.
1: We just want to be quite clear on that because we don't want to focus so hard on the Removal of microclots that we forget to find out how people got the microplots in the first place.
2: I would agree entirely with that. Yeah.
1: So in terms of the other things that we talked about, these have been coming through, what, for maybe six, eight months now. We've been talking to various people about these different drivers.
2: Yeah.
1: We've talked to various people about T-cells. And I know that you talk about CD4 and CD8 exhaustion, which is something particularly interesting to Noreen, Yes, because it's actually something that she's had tested. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're saying and what that means?
2: Yeah, I think in general, and I will preface by saying not an immunologist, but uh, certainly have been educating myself as much as I can on these things.
1: And that's actually quite interesting to have you talking about it because an immunologist talks to us about it in very, very immunological terms. Whereas if you can translate it so that we can fully understand it, that would be fantastic.
2: I think I'm going to keep it fairly simple because uh, fairly simple is what I understand. But you know, and Akiko would would do it justice. And so effectively, the CD4 and CD8 T cell, especially the activated T cell finding and the exhausted T cell finding, in general, what this tells us is that the body is fighting something. So the body is fighting an ongoing infection. Or the body is mounting an immune response to something that is there or not there, but it is mounting an aggressive immune response. And the exhausted part is that the immune system is starting to get overwhelmed. So we're starting to really stress the immune system because it's been active for so long. And the level of activation of the T cells that we're seeing gives us an indication of the inflammatory cytokines that are being produced. So we're seeing a lot of IL-6 being produced, a lot of IL-4 being produced. What I said earlier about this paper and and what I hope everyone takes to heart, because often when you produce a paper like this, everyone expects it to be the thing that explains everything. But this was a hypothesis generating paper. This was not an answer to life, the universe and everything paper. And so what I hope is that now at least 20 or 30 different labs start following each of these leads in more detail, we certainly are with the with KIKO and, and team, but we also have other papers that we're getting ready to publish that shine a light on some other things that I think are important in long COVID, such as mitochondrial dysfunction
0: mm-hmm.
2: and just general brain structure and function that might be leading some of the things that we saw in our hormone levels. So, yeah, the T-cell the finding really points us toward a confirmation that in a large proportion of people with long COVID, versus their non-Long COVID peers, we're seeing the immune system being highly active and working to the point of exhaustion. So we're fighting something.
0: But that's like different to another hypothesis, which could be that SARS-CoV-2 actually destroys your immune system in a similar way to HIV. Because, for example, my CD4 and CD8 cells are almost at HIV level, that low.
2: Yeah, I think that this is where we need to... Think about all the different endotypes and also understand that we took a kind of rarefied cohort of patients in that we really captured a group of people that had no comorbidities that really struck out at us as hmm, maybe we shouldn't include this person because they already have a pre-existing autoimmune disease or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or we pulled all of those people out of the cohort because we wanted to make sure we were getting pure. Long COVID, people who were previously healthy, got COVID, and now had a debilitating illness. But I think we also need to make room for the fact that there are people who either had a latent autoimmune disease that they didn't know about or were heading toward an autoimmune disease. They had pre autoimmunity and then they got hit by the virus, and the virus accelerated that illness Mm. because that adds a layer of complexity. That this is why the biomarker for long COVID is such a challenge, because you you do have this. You have people, even ME/CFS. You have people who had non-COVID triggered ME/CFS, and now they got COVID and their ME/CFS got much worse. Do they have COVID triggered ME/CFS, or do they just have a significant flare or a progression of their non-COVID ME/CFS? These are questions we need to ask. We are now thanks to a lot of mentorship from the ME-CFS community. We're now actively adding ME-CFS cohorts to all of our studies so that we can compare and contrast. But in this study, we tried to avoid anybody who had a pre-existing comorbidity that could have changed their numbers in, in a way that was unpredictable for us. And we still got an incredibly diverse response. So This has been part of the challenge.
1: What's interesting with that autoimmune response and the comorbidity is, I would say, and Noreen would say, that we didn't have a pre-existing autoimmune condition before we got long COVID. However, we both always had allergies. There are certain things like that, that I don't know if you saw it in your groups, but perhaps those do suggest that we had an underlying autoimmune condition. Are those the sort of things that you are using to suggest that we had an Undiagnosed autoimmune condition. You do have eczema. I have eczema, which which is autoimmune, though not that any dermatologist treats it like it's autoimmune.
0: No, and when I was a kid, I had psoriasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe this is why people like us tend tend to our systems of just being given an onslaught of this virus, and then that's it.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that this is a reasonable theory that we we really need to look into. Amy Prohl from the PolyBio mm. Institute. She talks about this idea of the successive hit theory. You've got this immune system that can fight anything, but if you keep hitting it with things, dysfunction will start to occur. Although we haven't proven it yet, I do think that there is a far greater opportunity for individuals to develop long COVID symptoms if they had this challenging medical history of extreme allergies or psoriasis, eczema, other things that could have been autoimmune i also know that if you talk to someone like uh, meta deerberg who runs the company myme which has been coaching people with autoimmune diseases for years well before covid she's incredibly knowledgeable just about the fact that many people with with a, a severe autoimmune condition like lupus will go from being perfectly healthy living their life with no limitations to Starting to feel non-specifically unwell, having perfectly normal blood tests, but already feeling the symptoms. To which an experienced rheumatologist or an experienced immunologist will say, "This is pre-autoimmunity. Your blood tests are within normal limits, but starting to look slightly abnormal, but not abnormal enough for us to be able to diagnose sugarins or lupus or any of these or Hashimoto's, but." You're starting to tend that way. And then there'll be this event that pushes you into full autoimmunity. And so I think that just understanding that there's so much complexity and there's so much nuance to this as we're exploring it is important.
0: I mean, this begs the question, as we are living with COVID and people are having it multiple times... Does the body then become increasingly at risk of developing long COVID?
2: I worry absolutely yes. This is why I've been fairly outspoken about the CDC just saying, let it rip. It's, Mm. It's all, don't wear masks, don't worry about it. And they say it in spite of the fact that they themselves are publishing data showing that each successive viral infection increases your risk of death let
1: alone
2: alone post-acute sequelae.
1: As well as all of these other additional things that are coming through, the strokes and the heart attacks, the hepatitis, things that are not long COVID, but you have an increased chance of them with every infection, it seems.
2: Exactly. Given my pre-COVID work, I happen to work with a lot of endovascular neurosurgeons and their call schedule has gone from you know they'll be on call in the middle of the night they'd be able to come come over to my lab and have a chat with me and hang out and now it's just the term raining strokes it's just like it's just every day that they're on call it is non-stop until the next day there are no quiet days anymore with with stroke and it's shocking yeah it's just we're, we're somehow conveniently ignoring this or again we're saying oh it's because of lockdown and people got you know, people had less regular appointments with the doctor and there's a flow-on effect. <laughs> but
0: these are young people. These are not the usual these people. Are that you people. That you wouldn't associate these are young people. These
2: are young people, yeah. And, and I think it was The Lancet that actually published a paper just showing how suddenly there's a whole bunch of young people having strokes that weren't having strokes before. We see it in every corner of society and, and it's... Car accidents, people are having more car accidents, all of these things. And, and that's, to me, you know, I'm like, okay, well, that's executive function. You've yeah. lost of executive function. And so it's, it's easier to make mistakes that lead to, to these car accidents. But I'm starting to liken long COVID at this point to climate change. It's just like people, <laughs> wow, people have made their camps and they will say anything to deny that it's happening So it's like, yeah, Florida gets washed away in a once-in-a-hundred-year hurricane. Find some ways to justify it. No, no, no. Well, you know, it was going to happen eventually. And this is the same thing. It's just like, as we're facing a mass disabling event, we're facing an event that already is affecting 7.5% of the US population, at least. We know it's progressive. We know that people are resigning from their jobs and not getting new jobs. We know that unemployment rates are going up. We know that people are increasingly reaching out to a Social Security Administration for benefits, and yet people who don't believe in long COVID are saying, oh, well, it's because no one wants to work and they're lazy mm. and... Um...
1: As a 44-year-old woman, I have been told that a lot of my long COVID symptoms are uh, perimenopause. Now, I didn't have any of these things before I had COVID. There is a direct correlation between my first COVID infection and then a complete change in my hormone levels. But the number of times that it has been denied in terms of, yeah, but you are 44. So it was just the time that it was going to happen, which I object to. But that leads me on to wanting to ask you about what you have found in your study relating to hormones.
2: Yeah, so the big finding that everyone got quite excited about was was the morning cortisol finding, Mm. that there was this... Huge difference between morning cortisol in people with long COVID versus people without long COVID.
0: What is morning cortisol?
2: So cortisol—it's a—it's a stress hormone. So it's usually if someone stresses you out, your cortisol levels will rise up. But also, it's good for two things. It's good for fight-flight responses, so getting your body ready to to take on a challenge. It's also very good for waking you up in the morning. So you wake up and you're drowsy and then your cortisol spikes, which makes you a little bit more alert. And then you get on with your day and your cortisol tips that down. And you have a whole pattern through the day whereby it keeps you as alert as you need to be. And then it starts to drop off in the evening so that you can easily get to sleep. So
1: it affects your adrenal response as well, does it? You're saying it affects your sleep. It affects your, as in going to sleep, it affects your waking in the morning. And does it also have an impact on your inflammatory response?
2: It does, yes. It's actually an anti-inflammatory. Mm. So it can help curb inflammatory responses. It also has you know, an effect on your ability to operate in stressful situations because in a stressful situation, your cortisol levels will rise up in a controlled way to give you whatever your body needs in terms of resources to handle the stressful situation. So it does a lot to do with alertness, ability to handle stressful situations, and also then managing inflammation afterwards.
1: Now, do you think that people's cortisol levels have been affected by the COVID? Or do you think that the people who have long COVID had an issue with their cortisol levels before they contracted it, which is why they've not been able to get themselves better?
2: I will say that this finding in the study, we're in the process right now of doing a follow-up study in in hundreds of people with long COVID to look at how their cortisol levels change across two days. Mm. So we're doing what was called a diurnal cortisol study where we'll look at 10 time points per day of cortisol levels in, in people with long COVID because this is what we need to understand next. We need to understand are people with long COVID cortisol deficient and therefore they need cortisol I don't think that's the case. The reason I don't think that is the case is because if that was the case, long COVID would be over like that because you'd just give people steroids. With steroids,
1: and you, you haven't seen an impact from the steroids,
2: have you? Exactly. Some people have an improvement with steroids, but it no one's getting cured of their long COVID with steroids.
0: Just to recap, your findings showed that people had low levels of cortisol.
2: That is correct. Right. Low levels of cortisol in the morning in the long COVID group.
0: Because... Obviously, the Twitter sphere is this massive bubble, but it does give a lot of anecdotal (laughs) stories. And both Emily and I had this. I would wake up in the morning in that fight or flight response, like heart racing. That would actually assume that our cortisol levels were quite high at that point. Yeah. That's gone away now because obviously our symptoms tend to change. They have changed over the last two years. So we've got now different symptoms to what we had two years ago, but... I did go through a period of waking up, feeling this fight or flight response. And Emily used to have it during
1: the day, didn't you? Oh, it's like the feeling of anxiety, but I don't have anxiety, but it's a very physical sensation. Mm.
2: Which points me in a direction of like hyperadrenergic pots where you start getting a lot of bursts of adrenaline. Yeah,
1: and I was definitely, I was stuck in this fight or flight mode for so long. I didn't sleep for about 18 months but it it's so interesting the way that all of the hormones seem to have interacted and knocked each other out, also then leading to you know serotonin depletion or i I don't know how they all interact, but there's definitely been a massive knock on the on the endocrine
2: system yeah and and this is something we're exploring now. My urge is let's not make too much of the cortisol finding just yet until we've understood what happens to people's cortisol through the day because ultimately to me the big takeaway from the study was when you aggregate all the blood biomarkers we see a difference between the two groups the cortisol finding happened to be the one that popped
1: it really did get pulled out by the media didn't it because when i yeah. went read the study i thought but this isn't any more prominent than any other finding within the study
2: exactly and if we had pulled a different hundred people maybe the cd4 cd8 t cell would have popped mm. more prominently than and you know
0: yeah, so this was a study of about 215 people, right? Then 99 had That's long great. COVID. And, then and the rest the others- did not. Yeah. yeah.
2: And and, um, and and so the for me, what was really interesting was the fact that in addition to being able to classify the difference between COVID and not long COVID with blood biomarkers, we could also do it with symptom reporting. And then when we looked for the level of agreement between the two groups. So does the machine learning algorithm that is pulling out people and saying you have long COVID because of your blood, is that algorithm selecting the same people as the machine learning algorithm that's saying you have long COVID because of your symptom presentation? And the answer was yes. The answer was the symptoms are matching up to the the physiology. And so I I think the big learning there is, of course, we're looking everywhere for a physical biomarker. Patients are walking in and saying, these are my symptoms right now while we're looking for the biomarker. That's all you need because it's agreeing with this biomarker that costs us a few million dollars to run. We just need to keep pushing this very frustrating message of just listen to your patients. They're telling you what's wrong. And let's focus on just believing people as opposed to gaslighting them.
0: So if we've basically got a syndrome, which means that every patient then would have a, a specific program to make them better, rather than one magic bullet, right?
2: A hundred percent. If there's a, a takeaway message, never believe anyone who's saying that they're curing everyone with the same treatment regimen, because that person is selling snake oil. There is, <laughs> we we already know that there is no one cure to long COVID. Everyone in the long COVID community knows it, and yet there are still people out there trying to pitch their one supplement or their one medicinal or their one, yeah. their one device that is curing all of long COVID. That, that's nonsense. There, there's at least 10 or 15 mechanisms that we're chasing right now, and each one needs a precision approach. And so do all of our patients. And that's the way medicine should be, ultimately, is the person in front of you as an individual, they bring their own individual immune history and circulatory history and cardiac history. And in a complex chronic illness like that, each each of those factors needs to be treated with a precision and personalised approach.
1: The highlight was that he could distinguish with 96% accuracy long COVID versus non-long COVID from his sort of battery of tests. That was really his highlight, that he felt like... The identification, not in terms of one biomarker, but the identification of the multi-different subsets of long COVID could be identified. However, he also then said at the end that all of his testing is kind of irrelevant. It's just if someone comes in and says they've got long COVID, they've probably got long COVID. This kind of needs to be done on symptom basis rather than via millions of pounds worth of testing. I think the
0: upsum is that we've talked to now some of the most up to date and cutting edge researchers in long COVID and the most intelligent of them will all say, we know this, this and this, but actually we don't know anything.
1: And, And those same people have all said, you've got to listen to your patient. At the moment, that's still pretty much the only guide.
0: Yeah, so it really comes down to the individual doctor, right? Yeah. What are they willing to listen to?
1: Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.